Yo, 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 what's good, everybody? What's good? What's good? What's happening? We're back. We're back. We're back. Back in full effect. Welcome back to another episode of the IKP, the Isaiah K Podcast. Welcome back. How y'all doing? How everybody? How is everybody doing out there? Hope everybody there's doing fine. I am doing well. I am doing just fine. Um, <clears throat> I'm your humble and highly favorite host, Isaiah Kid of the Isaiah K Podcast. We're going to get into a lot. Um, I don't, I said a lot, but Saturday episode, you know how we give it up. Saturday episode, you guys know how we give it up. Uh, I got a list. Finally, I got a list that I'm going to, I'm going to talk about. I'm going to list, I'm going to give you guys my list of favorite, my favorite NBA finals moments. Yes. My favorite, my favorite NBA finals moments uh, since it's the NBA finals and, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get into what happened the first two games uh, and what I saw. We're gonna get into it, but I got a I got a list that I want to get to. The that's gonna be like more towards the end of the pod. Obviously, I want to talk. I want to talk some NFL. We're getting closer and closer to the NFL season, so I want to talk some NFL. Uh, I got. I want to talk about Sean McVay, Jerk. I mean Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Matthew Stafford. They made some interesting comments. I think that I think is really, really interesting. Um, Nikhil Hurry. I'm gonna talk about the Patriots, but let's start with the NBA Finals. Obviously, the NBA Finals. The NBA Finals were two games. So last time I talked to you guys, we were the NBA Finals were just about to start, and I told you guys I predicted the Phoenix Suns to beat the Milwaukee Bucks in game in, in, in the series. I had I had Phoenix in six games. Uh I chose Phoenix because obviously they have they have the coaching edge, which we have seen in the first two games. They I, that's what I said at the beginning of the series. When I picked Phoenix, uh I said Phoenix in six, they have a they have a better coach. They have the coaching edge. They they're they they execute. I trust their game plans. Uh they they are playing team basketball like they're moving the ball at will um and two elite guard play they got they have two guards that are playing at an elite level and i thought that they will be able to exploit the milwaukee pick and roll defense <laughs> and lord and behold the phoenix suns have totally disjointed the the, the milwaukee bucks pick and roll defense and it's it's been awful. Game one was I, I didn't really expect Milwaukee to win game one because like you know this different factors. They had the turnaround. They won what they so they won game they won game six on Sunday or, or Saturday. They had to go turn around, fly back to Milwaukee on Sunday on Sunday. Then they had to go fly to Phoenix on Monday, then play on Tuesday. So that that was that was a quick turnaround. So I didn't then you know Giannis made he came back off of his hyperextended knee that looked really bad, but he came back and he was able to play. But even with that, I still thought Phoenix was the they were a real rested team. Um, they had most of their guys healthy coming into the series. I felt I just felt good about Phoenix, and like I said, I trusted I, these. And, and these were the two key points: the coaching edge that Phoenix have, 
and the fact that Phoenix, their backcourt, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, were going to be able to exploit <laughs> exploit the Milwaukee Bucks pick and roll defense, and that they have done. So in game one, uh, the Milwaukee were they were switching everything, and you know Chris Paul, Devin Booker, they were just picking and choosing their matchups. Um, and most of the time it would be Brooke Lopez. Some of the times it would be Bobby Portis. Anybody got it. Anybody got it. And Chris Paul had his way. He was just absolutely toying with Milwaukee. Uh, and then Devin Booker, he had his way. He wasn't as efficient, but he he got to his spots. Um, and he was uh, he was much more effective in game two. Um, going in, so Milwaukee lost game one. Going into game two, I expected to see different looks from, from Milwaukee defensively. Given the fact that the Phoenix Suns and the way how Chris Paul just completely torched their defense, especially in the pick and roll, I was expecting Milwaukee to give different looks. I'm talking about um, possible traps. Um, I'm, I'm talking about, um, you know, blitzing him, you know, running ice, something, something different than what they did in game one, because in game one, it was clear that no matter who you take out and who you put in, Phoenix was going to find the perfect matchup to take advantage of and, and get a basket or good or, or get a good shot. And it seems like the first two games of this series of the NBA Finals, it has been a total. And Chris Paul and Devin Booker are playing great. The Phoenix Suns offense, they're executing well. But the first two games have been an absolute, just, just an embarrassment as far as the coaching. Because Phoenix and Monty Williams, as I've said, Going back over the last couple weeks, I said Tyron Lue and Monty Williams have been the best two coaches in the postseason. And Mike Budenholzer, you guys know, I've been very, very critical of Mike Budenholzer and the lack of adjustments he's made. And this has just been the this this had this series so far. We can talk about the greatness of Chris Paul. We can talk about the emergent, the like the emerging superstar that we are watching Devin, Devin Booker become. We can talk about the inconsistencies of Chris Middleton. We can talk about the the poor shooting from Drew Holiday and him trying to and him doing his best Eric Bledsoe impersonation. We could talk about all of these things. But I think the first two games has been a display of just two polar opposite coaches. One and one and one coach in Monty Williams who makes the per who he maps out the game plan. If something's not working, he tweaks it mid-game. He tweaks it. He makes adjustments. And then on the other side, we're watching Mike Budenholzer just get totally out coached. And it's not even fair. So, in speaking of Mike Budenholzer, throughout the playoffs, I have gave you guys a rundown as to what I've been seeing um, as far as coaching and game planning for Mike Budenholzer. And at times, very often, 
I have found myself second guessing, like, what the hell is the Milwaukee Bucks doing? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. But I've I, I often throughout this playoff run, I have questioned what the hell are the what the hell are the Milwaukee Bucks are doing? What, what are they running? What is the defensive assignment? And I saw and I I I had a lot of those questions in game two. Um, in game two, I went so I watched game two two times. I watched it live when it first came on, obviously, but then I rewatched it, and I wanted to see what type of defensive assignment. Where, what was the Milwaukee Bucks running? Because you look at the, the the Phoenix Suns went 20. They made 20 of 40 three-point shots. They went 20 from 40 from the three-point line. And that's 50%. So they so first of all, in today's NBA, if you make 50% of your threes and you and you take 40 threes, you're gonna be very hard to beat. And sometimes you have sometimes you run into a team that have really good shooting nights. Sometimes you run into a team that has really good shooting nights and you have a bad shooting night. But in game two, just watching the game, I can't chop it up like that. And I'm not saying Phoenix, Phoenix had a great night shooting the ball, obviously. But I think some of that, part of that, at least half of that has to be attributed to the fact or to the way the Milwaukee Bucks were defending the Phoenix Suns. And like I said, game one was a, a complete travesty as far as the Milwaukee Bucks trying to defend the Phoenix, the Phoenix Suns pick and roll. Chris Paul and Devin Booker had their way. Absolutely. They switch, They got switches. They got the players that they wanted to pick out and Nick pick, and they, that's what they did. But in game two, you would think they would throw different looks, given the fact that Chris Paul and Devin Booker at this point of the playoffs in the NBA Finals, these are two elite guards, two elite guards, two elite guards in getting to their spot, in, which is around the mid-range game. And they are have, they're, they're, they're making a living. They're making a living. In the mid-range area. Well, well, Milwaukee comes out, and I looked at the, the assignments that they were running. Basically, what Milwaukee was doing, they were they were helping one pass away. The Milwaukee Bucks were helping one pass away. And you can see this where the, the Milwaukee Bucks were intentionally, like literally intentionally, Giving up wide open three point shots, the ver the very first basket of the game, the very first the very first basket that Phoenix made. Devin Booker gets a simple handoff. He runs. He, he gets a screen from Aiden. He's penetrating. Lopez is in good position. He's in good position. Excuse me. Lopez is in. He's in. He's in solid position to to read and react or the or to be able to defend the shot. Well. Giannis comes over and helps one pass away where Jay Crowder is is at the is at the wing, and Devin Booker easily passes it to Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder, the same Jay Crowder that went zero for seven in Game One, and he starts his night off one for one, and the Phoenix Suns get on the board, and then that was a continuous trend throughout the game, where 
Milwaukee continued to help off of one. They would leave a shooter. They would intentionally leave a shooter to help the penetration. And all Devin Booker and Chris Paul had to do was just kick it out to the shooters. And the shooters did their job that night. They did their job that night. And <laughs> I-, I talked about this, how Milwaukee, they they are the dumbest team that like Milwaukee literally may be the dumbest team in NBA finals history. Like they may be the dumbest team to ever make the NBA finals. Not the worst, not the worst. It's a difference, not the worst, but schematically with the talent that they have, they may be the dumbest team to ever make the NBA finals. And when I say dumb, I mean their execution is poor. And their execution is poor, but on top of that, before that, the game planning is subpar. Mike Boonhoser's game planning is subpar. I thought there were I thought there was multiple looks that the Milwaukee Bucks should have thrown at Phoenix. And the way how Milwaukee played Phoenix in game two defensively. As far as defending the pick and roll, that was not one of the ideas that I had in mind and that others shared with me. That 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 was not it. That was not it. I was I was I, I was looking forward to seeing uh Milwaukee come out in a trap. Um sometimes trapping Chris Paul or Devin Booker before they get into the pick and roll actions. Um, I, I, I see, I, I see Phoenix is taking a page out of Atlanta's book. They're running their Phoenix is running, running their patented Spain pick and roll and Milwaukee and Milwaukee had a hard time defending it. Um, so like I said, Phoenix had a hot night and usually in a, in a, in a series in a playoff series, usually both teams have a really good night, like. Usually, at least one game, both teams has a, have a really good night from shooting the ball. But with Phoenix, and they're, they're, they are a smart basketball team, well-oiled machine. They they got, like, in the first two, the these first two games, Phoenix have gotten every shot that they wanted, and they have gotten the efficient look at the basket anytime they wanted. But Phoenix making 23-pointers and shooting 50%, from three, it's we can chalk it up as a hot night for Phoenix, but the with the way how the Bucks were intentionally playing defense, that's what got the Bucks killed in Game Two. And then don't I don't even want to talk about Chris Middleton. I mean, I, I mean Chris Middleton, that was awful. That 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 was a that that was a bad that was a subpar performance from Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. Chris Middleton, get the look at this. The first two games in NBA Finals, Giannis, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday are combined nine for thirty nine from the three point line. Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday in Game Two literally got out, not they didn't get outplayed by Devin Booker and Chris Paul. They got outplayed by Makai Bridges and Jay Crowder. And I'm not and I'm not saying Makai I'm not saying Mikhail Bridges and, and Jay Crowder aren't great players. They're really good role players. Like they're they're phenomenal starters. 
But Drew Holiday and Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton make way too much money, and, and and for them, for those guys to be the big three, for Milwaukee to be their like that's that's Milwaukee's two two out of their three best players. You can't get outplayed by Phoenix role players. You can't. So Drew Holiday, Drew Holiday gave me a lot of Eric Bledsoe vibes. He gave me a lot of Eric Bledsoe vibes. And, yes, I like the fact that he was more aggressive, but he forgot something else. On top of being aggressive, you got to also make shots. But once again, I look back and I watch the different half-court sets that Milwaukee ran for Drew Holiday, and they just some of those looks just weren't efficient looks. So I'm looking at once again, I'm looking at the coaching staff and Mike Budenholzer. You gotta if you okay, Drew Holiday, he was more aggressive in game two. But he started out three for eleven. He started he actually started out three for three, but then he went on to miss his next eight. Nine shots. He missed his. He he missed. He went on to miss his next eight shots. That came from poor, inefficient looks, and some of that has to go on coaching because you're supposed to put your players in the best possible positions to succeed, offensively and defensively. And Mike Budenholzer has failed to do that in the first two games, and it's just been a continuous trend throughout the postseason because they like and let's be honest let's call a spade a spade milwaukee got lucky with with brooklyn brooklyn had some injuries if brooklyn was healthy if brooklyn had kyrie irving if they had a kyrie healthy if, if they had a healthy kyrie irving brooklyn wins this series and we're having a whole different conversation about milwaukee like they're not even in this conversation as far as the nba finals um trey young got hurt so like let's just call a spade a spade the milwaukee bucks poor execution Poor defense, poor game planning, uh, poor scheme. And right now they're going up against a Phoenix Suns team who is clicking on all cylinders, who has a point guard, an all-time great point guard, playing at an all-time level right now. Um, Chris Paul, Chris Paul knows that he's close, he's getting closer and closer. They have Devin Booker who's turning, he's we're we're watching Devin Booker turn into an emerging superstar. At, like right now in the moment, we're watching it. DeAndre Aiden having a phenomenal series. Didn't play good and didn't play well in game two, but he played really well in game one. Boy, oh boy, Phoenix is rolling right now. And I feel bad for Giannis because Giannis had a historic night, but in a loss. Um, he had 40, he finished with 42 points, but he exploded in the third quarter. Um, and he had his way. He had his way. Actually, Giannis had 23rd quarter points, which was the most points uh, in a quarter in the NBA Finals over the last 25 years. So Giannis had a historic night, but it came with an embarrassing loss. Uh, I catch you guys on the other side. So in speaking of Mike Budenholzer, throughout the playoffs, I have gave you guys a rundown as to what I've been seeing um, as far as coaching and game planning for Mike Budenholzer. And at times, very often, I have found myself second-guessing, like, what the hell is the Milwaukee Bucks doing? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but 
I've I, I often throughout this playoff run, I have questioned what the hell are the what the hell are the Milwaukee Bucks are doing? What, what are they running? What is the defensive assignment? And I saw and I I I had a lot of those questions in game two. Um, in game two, I went so I watched game two two times. I watched it live when it first came on, obviously, but then I rewatched it, and I wanted to see what type of defensive assignment. Where, what was the Milwaukee Bucks running? Because you look at the, the the Phoenix Suns went 20. They made 20 of 40 three-point shots. They went 20 from 40 from the three-point line. And that's 50%. So they so first of all, in today's NBA, if you make 50% of your threes and you and you take 40 threes, you're gonna be very hard to beat. And sometimes you have sometimes you run into a team that have really good shooting nights. Sometimes you run into a team that has really good shooting nights and you have a bad shooting night. But in game two, just watching the game, I can't chop it up like that. And I'm not saying Phoenix, Phoenix had a great night shooting the ball, obviously. But I think some of that, part of that, at least half of that has to be attributed to the fact or to the way the Milwaukee Bucks were defending the Phoenix Suns. And like I said, game one was a, a complete travesty as far as the Milwaukee Bucks trying to defend the Phoenix the Phoenix Suns pick and roll. Chris Paul and Devin Booker had their way. Absolutely. They switch they got switches. They got the players that they wanted to pick out and Nick pick and they that's what they did. But in game two, you would think they would throw different looks. Given the fact that Chris Paul and Devin Booker at this point of the playoffs in the NBA Finals, these are two elite guards, two elite guards, two elite guards in getting to their spot, and which is around the mid-range game. And they are have they're, they're, they're making a living. They're making a living. In the mid-range area. Well, well, Milwaukee comes out, and I looked at the, the assignments that they were running. Basically, what Milwaukee was doing, they were they were helping one pass away. The Milwaukee Bucks were helping one pass away. Okay, so we're almost about 23 minutes into this episode. Um, so you're tuning into the Isaiah Kid podcast. I'm gonna shift gears to the NFL. I got um uh, I got a couple NFL stories I want to get to and talk about and discuss with you guys as we are moving closer and closer to the NFL season. I cannot wait. I really I you guys know I cannot wait to talk about and discuss the NFL. We're gonna do it a little bit right here, right now. Um a big time trade that happened throughout the offseason. Uh, and I talked about it on this episode on this podcast before, obviously. Um, but some more a little bit of a backstory have come out. And I'm talking about Matthew Stafford to the LA Rams. And um recently Peter Strager had uh Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan on his podcast and I am I'm gonna play this clip for you guys. I thought it was really interesting. What did you what did you think when you saw that we traded for Stafford? You don't want to get me started, dude. That was, <laughs> that was frustrating. I was actually 
I was in Cabo. I was watching it all. I had never studied Stafford that So wait, hard. you were actually in Cabo when you I when we were down hotel. in Cabo? Oh, yeah. So you yeah. at the wrong hotel, Cabo. So, hey, so, hey, I'm just glad he wasn't staying at El Dorado. <laughs> I, um, I remember looking through it because everyone was telling me it was a possibility. And Stafford's the man. Um, I, mean, I studied him hard coming out of college. And you always yeah. just play against him, so you know how good he is. But to know he might be available and to spend two weeks really watching him, Sean, yeah, he's better than I've realized. <laughs> I mean, he was the man, and he's actually underrated to me. So I know how good of a guy he got. I know how good he is at play action. I know how smart he is. Not only does he just have a big arm, but he's got touch, and he knows where to go with the ball. So I was trying to get involved in it. Someone who had knowledge on this situation, I remember us talking to Condon, to everyone, to find out when it was happening. And I remember Saturday, I was so stressed out. And finally, we talked to someone. It was like seven at night. And they're like, no, nothing's happening at the earliest till tomorrow. So you can finish your night. So I'm like, all right, I'm done. Put my phone down. Um, talk to Mandy. I'm like, all right, let's go out to dinner. Let's have some drinks. <laughs> a half an hour later, my buddy calls me. He's like, I'm just telling you, if you want Stafford, you need to get a hold of him right now. Yep. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, we just talked to people. Like, I can sleep on this. We'll talk to him tomorrow. I'm just telling you, you need to talk to him right now. And it totally, I knew it. And then like 10 minutes later, it was all over. Oh, it was it, fun. It, hey, if it makes you feel any better, it, it came together faster than I thought too, Kyle. So. <laughs> well, the fact I was in Cabo, man, like I would have been eerie. there and I would have made it really awesome. Okay, so <laughs> um, a couple things that I want to address. And... Don't want to toot my horn, but I was right about a couple. I was right about a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, Matthew Stafford, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, all at Cabo at the same time, in the same time frame where Matthew Stafford, it gets announced that Matthew Stafford is getting traded to the Rams. And Matthew Stafford and Sean McVay are staying at the same hotel. Hmm. I don't think that's coincidental. I thought I th I think that was planned. Uh, <laughs> I think that was planned, but that's just me. Um, but a couple things. A couple things that I talked about in the regular season last year. Um, in the in in I like so in. Let's just start with this one thing. The first, the, so the first thing is that I that I talked about last year was the the relationship with McVeigh and Jared Goff. First of all, <laughs> you can tell Sean McVeigh is thrilled. You can <laughs> you can tell Sean McVeigh is smiling from one cheekbone to the other. He is smiling. He can't. He can't stop smiling and laughing and talking about jerk and talking about Matthew Stafford. And this shows me that Jared Goff and, and or Sean McVay have reached a boiling point with Jared Goff last year. Um, despite the Rams being a really good football team, which they were last year, um, <clears throat> despite them winning a playoff game. And despite Jared Goff, like, you know, uh, Warford, Warford got hurt in that playoff game in the first quarter, and then Jared Goff came in and took over and won the game. Um, despite all of that, 
Sean McVay had reached a boiling point. And McVay, like I told you, I, I told you guys this throughout the regular season. When you have these innovative play callers, these crafty offensive mind like the McVeighs and the the Kyle Shanahan's, you know, the you can you can list them all. Uh Brian Dayball, whatever. Um, but I'm mostly head coaches, right? When you got these innovative play callers and they call up the perfect play, they're giving they're they're like they're calling a great game, but they know but and 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 sometimes with these great play callers, they know their quarterback. And McVeigh at times had to had to dummy down his play calling and not always call the big shots. Because now I think you're gonna I think you're gonna now see McVay open up the offense because he has a quarterback in Matthew Stafford who has superior talent and capabilities that Jared Goff just did not have. And that's the thing with McVay. McVay had the hold back. McVay couldn't pull out all his stops because Jared Goff, I mean, then Jared Goff is not a bad quarterback. But Jared Goff obviously has limitations as far as, you know, him, you know, his deep ball is pretty good, but he doesn't really, he, he doesn't overly stretch the field. He's obviously, he's not the most dynamic quarterback with his legs nor his arm. So McVay, and, and then he turned into a turnover machine. So McVay had to really dummy down the offense a bit and like, and he had to hold back on his play calling. So even if McVay called the perfect play, even if McVay called the perfect drive or possession or game, at times Jared Goff would put the ball in harm's way. And with a team like the Rams, the way how they're set up, they can run the football well. They control the line of scrimmage on both offense and defense. Their defense is 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 solid. It's a top ten caliber defense. And last year it was one of the best defenses in the best defenses in the league last year. And when you see golf just give away games, you could tell McVay have reached a boiling point. So that's the first thing that I was. It seems like that I was proven right on. The second thing is. I think it was week five. After week five, Sunday night football, I think it was. The Rams go into San Francisco and the 49ers, mind you, the 49ers are injury riddled. They don't have Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, and I think C I think CJ Befford is their starting quarterback. I think CJ Befford is their starting quarterback. In some way, somehow, the 49ers were able to beat the Rams. And I told you guys after that game, I came on the podcast right after that game, and I said, Sean McVay is pissed, and I know, I know him and Kyle Shanahan have little friendly personal battles against each other. I know they do. I know they do. I know they discuss, I know they discuss different things in I know they do, and I told you guys, I'm like, the, these two guys, Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay, these two guys are two young emerging coaches, 
and McVay is we like when especially when when McVay took over the Rams and he did what he did his first season they went 11 and 5 they lost in the playoffs but then his second season they come back um they win a division and then they go on to go on to the Super Bowl and they lose the Super Bowl obviously but after that run McVay around the league got that title. He got that boy wonder title. And, you know, he was the neck, he was the offensive guru, and he's the next best thing since sliced bread. And then now we got Kyle Shanahan, who has taken over the 49ers, who obviously got them to a Super Bowl the year before last. You know, obviously, we all know what happened. Kansas City ended up winning it. But then we look like a lot of the, a lot of people in the league are looking at Kyle Shanahan like, oh, my goodness, Kyle Shanahan. So now we have two. So the, we have these two young, brilliant offensive minds and both of them prior to this year. Both of them with Kyle had Jimmy Garoppolo, Sean McVay had Jared Goff. Both of these guys had subpar. I'm not going to say subpar. But they had quarterbacks who were good, but they they weren't bad, but they were good quarterbacks, but they weren't they weren't super talented. They weren't super dynamic. They didn't have dynamic players at the position. And as you can see, throughout the off, throughout this offseason, both of them, both of them have looked to gone and get upgrades at the quarterback position. Look at Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford. They traded for Matthew Stafford. Now, Matthew Stafford's obviously, he's not like, he's not going to playmake with his legs, but he has a dynamic arm. He has, he he's definitely like, Jared Goff is one thing, but then Matthew Stafford as a talent is a whole nother thing, and he's on a different level as far as a talent. From a talent perspective, he's on a different level. And then with San Francisco, the 49ers, in this past draft, they move mountains. Literally, they move mountains to go up to number three and snag Trey Lance, who a bit um raw, more of raw, but talented, big athlete, strong, strong arm, good pocket, good pocket presence, strong kid, and Kyle Shanahan is banking on that. So as I told you guys, and it looks like I was, I said two things that I said throughout the course of the regular season that proved to be true or that proven to be true. I called it. McVay had reached a boiling point with Jared Goff and these two coaches, Kyle Shanahan and, 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 and Sean McVay, although they are friends and they are cool and they're very cordial with each other, they're, they're good friends. But please do not get it mistaken. These two, they're fighting for that, you know, that young, because both of them are young, smart, offensive, innovative gurus. And they're, they're definitely competing. And we love it. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I, I think, you know, I mean, Sean McVay has just been going all over the place and talking about Matthew Stafford. So I feel like I can't wait for Matthew Stafford because I've kind of – I'm not going to lie to you guys. I've kind of been harsh on Matthew Stafford a bit. Like, I understand that Detroit hasn't had the greatest supporting cast around him. 
Um, you would, but we, you would think with a guy with his capabilities and talent, he would be able to overcome some of those things, but he just hasn't. And that's okay because it's Detroit. <laughs> it's, it's Detroit. And, you know, Detroit doesn't have the greatest history, obviously. We all know that. Um, and it, there's just been a litany of bad coaches that have come through there. The best coach that Matthew Stafford has had up until Sean McVay was Jim Caldwell. And they got rid of him for some odd reason, which he, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. But I, and it's very interesting how, and, and throughout this interview um, that they did with Peter Schrager, um, they, they talk so loosely about their franchise quarterbacks. Like they, like it's, it's, I mean, Kyle Shanahan for, you know, for, for Jimmy G to still be a 49er, you know, they talk so loosely about their quarterbacks, and it's like they expect their quarterbacks to have thick skin. Um, but I think that's a really interesting development uh, with with these two. And I told you, I, I was proven right on, on both of my statements that I made throughout the regular season last year. I think that's pretty impressive. I cannot wait to see this NFC West battle just in general. And um, I just can't wait to see Matthew Stafford um and to see what he does with the Rams. It's such a well, it's it's a it's not a the Rams, they have a really good roster, and I think they're gonna be really good. And I think they're gonna be amongst the NFC top teams. I don't think they're quite as good as Tampa Bay. Uh I don't think they're quite as balanced as Tampa Bay. But uh it's gonna be really interesting to see Matthew Stafford in a different situation, in a better situation, quite frankly. But let me get to one last NFL story. <laughs> <laughs> that I that I that I find personally funny. Um <laughs> so Nikhil Harry, Patriots wide receiver, uh he was drafted a couple years ago. And uh, you know, there's reports that he wants out of New England. <laughs> and I, I just find it funny. I kind of find this funny because New England, and I talked about this on plenty of of occasions, where uh, New England have just totally whiffed, just whiffed on drafting not only just skills positions offensively, but just receivers. Like we only got to talk about skills, but receiver, they they like New England just. You know how I always talk about certain teams being able to draft certain positions like Pittsburgh. They're they, like Pittsburgh always like they always know how to draft receivers. Pittsburgh, whoever works in that scouting department and as far as like scouting receivers, they do a hell of a job because they like Pittsburgh always drafts really good receivers. Like they they draft really good talent at the receiver position. New England just can't. New England can't. Um, and the kill Harry, he, I mean, he, his displeasure, his displeasures come from lack of targets, you know, and he, he wants to be, he wants to be quote unquote, an essential piece to another team's offense. Uh, obviously we know about new England, uh, and Belichick this past off season, they, they went out and made some big time moves this off season. The, 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 the Patriots went out and spent some big bucks, um, at the receiver position and, uh, <laughs> new England, like I said, new England sucks at drafting receivers, but this kid, Nikhil Harry, he's played 24. He's played, he's played 21 career games. 
Uh, he was he was he he missed the majority of his rookie season due to um, injury, uh, but he's played 21 career games. He has 45 receptions, 414 yards, four touchdowns, and they they took Nikhil Harry with the 32nd pick in the first round uh, out of Arizona State. He just hasn't lived up to the billing, um, and. As bad as he might want to trade from New England, I think New England wants to trade him equally as bad. <laughs> um, I think I think you know New England. Nikhil Hurry wants he wants out of the of the New England business. I'm sure the Patriots want out of New, of the Nikhil Hurry business, but there's just I I can imagine. There's not many teams knocking on the door, knocking down the door to draft or to trade, I should say, to trade for Nikhil Harry um, because he just hasn't done anything impressive. Um, so I'm pretty sure New England wants to trade him as well. It's one of those situations where <laughs> a player a player thinks they're doing something when they're requesting a trade and the whole time the team wants to trade him equally as bad. <laughs> um, but like, I'm going to read off a couple of these guys that new England has drafted at the receivers at the receiver position over the last 10 years, basically uh, Aaron Dobson. He was a second rounder, 24, 24 career games, 53 receptions. Just, I mean, some of these guys, you probably even, you, you probably even never like, you just forgot, uh, Taylor Price, Matthew Slater, Chad Jackson, Gunnar Olowski, Malcolm Mitchell, Josh Boyce, Brandon Tate, PK Sam, um, Braxton Burrios. Like, it's just so many guys that the Patriots have tried to draft at the receiver position. And this is literally like in a, this is literally like in a, the span of like almost 10 years of just whiffing and just whiff after whiff after whiff after whiff on a receiver. <laughs> it just hasn't worked out. Um, New England just, you know, New England, they're not great at drafting receivers. Uh, but like I said, I think New England, as bad as Nikhil Hurry wants out of New England, I'm sure New England is equally, they equally want out of the Nikhil Hurry business. Simple as that. Um, but like I said, I can imagine there aren't many suitors. Um, and like I said, players think they be doing something when they try to make these type of announcements, when they try to retract, like some players, like when star players request trade, okay, you take it serious. But, when Nikhil Harry is requesting for a trade, New England was probably trying to search for trade partners to try to get off of Nikhil Harry because he's been that bad. He just hasn't lived up to the billing. Um, so yeah, but uh, I'm gonna get to my um my I'm gonna give you guys my favorite NBA Finals moments. My personal favorite. I'm not I, I'm not ranking it or whatever, but just my personal favorite NBA Finals moments. Uh, coming up right right after this. All right, so it's been a while. 
it's been a while since I've gave you guys a list. I usually do all my lists around football season because I give you guys my top ten teams on a weekly basis. So yeah, I know y'all can't forget. I know y'all getting excited for that, but um, my top. These are gonna be my top, my favorite moments slash performances in the NBA Finals. It's mostly going to be moments, um, but these are my favorite. I'm not ranking them. I'm not saying these are the greatest moments, even though some of these could be argued as some of the greatest moments, but in fine, but these are my favorite. These are my personal favorite moments. Um, so let's start. Let's start. I, I, I mean, the 1980 Finals, even though I wasn't born, uh, you can go back and look at these games and watch these games, and you know, uh, 1980 finals. I think obviously Magic Johnson filling in playing center because Kareem had had the ankle injury. We all know the story. Game six, NBA Finals. Magic Johnson jumps ball as center. Um, he puts up 45 and 12 and like nine, like he had some crazy numbers, statistical, you know, statistical numbers. The Lakers went on, ended up to win on, went on to win that NBA championship. Um, obviously, obviously magic. He had a, he had a, he had a solid, he had a solid rookie year. He didn't win rookie of the year. He obviously wasn't the best player on his team at the time. Kareem was the best player. Um, and Bird had won rookie of the year. So I think I think Magic, Magic, he had the shared point guard duties with Norm Nixon. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Magic obviously was great, but he had to share point guard duties with Norm Nixon. Uh and, and Bird, like I said, Bird had one week of the year. So this this game six for Magic was kind of big to like really start to begin the legend of Magic Johnson, like the superstar that we obviously know, the all time great that we obviously know he is today. That was kind of the the that was kind of the beginning of it. Um, I think I think. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, I mean, you could probably mark, I mean, obviously he was a big-time prospect coming out of Michigan State, him and Bird, obviously. But I think, um, yeah, I think that's about it. I think that's, I think that's, yeah, 1980, I like it. I like that moment. Um, Once again, I, I'm going to go to, I'm a, I mean, Michael Jordan has so many of these iconic moments in the finals, uh, but the 1991, uh, him doing that reverse, that amazing layup where he he's going up one way and then he finishes it. The the number like just absolutely magical, and um that was like basically the beginning of Michael Jordan and him winning championships. When I say the beginning, I mean like him winning championships. Magic Michael Jordan obviously before nineteen ninety one. I mean, before 1991, he was looked upon as the best player in basketball. But then in the 90s, he obviously started to add some more jewelry. And that's where he became the GOAT um, in a lot of people's eyes. Michael Jordan, 1992, the struggle where he hits, uh, we he just went so he went, goes on a shooting display and he hits what, six, seven th straight three pointers. He, he, he had 35 in the first half. I mean, 
just absolutely phenomenal. Went on to win that, uh, to win, you know, that championship, back to back championships in '92. Um, I'm gonna have to say I, I could, I could give you guys another Michael Jordan one, but I'm, a, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna give you guys my last Michael Jordan one. Uh, 1998, Michael Jordan steals the ball from Karl Malone, comes down, walks it down, and then he hits the shot. Step back, or well, he pulls pulls back. Um, I don't think it was a push off. He hits the game winner. He wins his sixth championship. Uh, we know how that goes. We know how that story went. Hits the game. He he hits it. Um, I think a finals moment that don't get talked about enough. I mean, at least at my at least in my opinion, I'm gonna say 2001 Island Iverson. Him going into the Staples Center. Game one in beating the Lakers, uh, the that that same Laker team that was undefeated in the playoffs at that point, um, and they went and obviously we all know the Lakers went on to win that series, but that that performance, that forty eight point performance from AI, was just absolutely phenomenal, and it was based it was literally David versus Goliath, and nobody nobody gave the seventy sixers a chance to get a game. So he got a game and and it he got it at the Staples Center. Uh obviously he has that, you know, where he 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 it's like he puts the nail in the coffin and he steps over Tyron Lue. Uh you know, that 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 that's a it's, that's forever an iconic moment. Um and just in basketball, it just a uh, totally iconic moment. Um my next my next, my next moment, I'm gonna go the Mavericks. I'm gonna go the 2011 Mavericks. Uh, in 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 particular, Game Two, the Mavericks went on a 22 to five run to come back after they were trailing to come back and beat the Heat in Game Two. Um, obviously, we all know Dallas went on to win that series. Um, in six games, but game two, the Mavericks that was probably one of their more that was probably the most impressive win out of all of the wins. Like, obviously, all of the wins were difficult and you know they had to work hard for, but I think game two was probably the most impressive because they were trailing. They are, they had already lost game one, they were in you know, they didn't want you don't want to go down 0 2. So the fact that they were able to steal game two, they went on a 22 to five run to beat the Heat on the road to tie the series, which ultimately set the tone. Um, yeah, I, I I think that I think that game that game I think um that you could probably argue that was a turning point probably. Um, yeah, definitely that's definitely one of my favorite moments in finals history. Uh, 2013, obviously Ray Allen. Uh, he hits the baseline three to tie the game up in Game Six. We all know how that goes. LeBron had a he, LeBron had an amazing fourth quarter in that Game Six, but then he misses the shot down the stretch. Chris Bosh gets the rebound. We all know what happens next. I'm actually visualizing that moment right now as I'm talking to you guys. Uh, Ray Allen hits the baseline three. Bang, he knocks it in, and you know, we're tied up. And then we all know the rest is history. The Heat went on, went on to go on to win game six. 
then they go on to win game seven and they are champions. Um, I'm going to say my next moment, I'm going to have to say the 2016 LeBron James chase down block in 2000 in, in game seven, 2016 LeBron chase down block in game seven. I can literally remember watching that game. It was on father's day. I could remember where I was watching that game and that game, that block, that play, that, that entire, that sequence leading up to that block is amazing. It's on, I think it's on YouTube. You can, I think you can YouTube like the last seven minutes of the fourth quarter, the last seven minutes of the fourth quarter, literally before that block, literally nobody had scored both teams were cold offensively. Both teams couldn't hit us. Both teams couldn't throw a rock into the ocean. And then once you know it, the Warriors get a fast break opportunity. It looks like they're going to get a layup, possibly an and one. And then out of nowhere, LeBron comes out of nowhere, literally nowhere. And he blocks a shot. Um, he, he, I mean, just an amazing, I mean, an amazing block. Probably, probably the best defensive play in finals history. Definitely the best defensive play in finals history, but arguably the best defensive play ever. I mean, that right there, that, that was great. And, um, so next 20, the 2017 finals, the 2017 finals, um, I think the 2017 final that that's where Durant obviously pulls up and hits the shot in front of LeBron. I think I, I, I that's one of my favorites. That's I don't have a lot like you guys can tell I don't have a lot of favorites. Um, but that's one of my favorites. Durant obviously, I mean Durant had balled out in that series. The Warriors were going to win it all. Um, and then Durant just for him to seal the game. Any chance that the Cavaliers thought they had, it it evaporated quickly after he hit that shot, and that right there put the dagger, put the nail in the coffin. Um, so those are my favorite moments um, in NBA Finals history. Obviously, there's more. I mean, there's so many moments to pick from. You, you know, you got Isaiah Thomas. You know, scores 25 points. In the third quarter, on a on an injured ankle, I mean, you got there's so many moments. You got Kobe, you know, struggling from the field in Game Seven of the 2010 Finals, and then he kicks it to Ron Artest, or I should say, Meta World Peace, uh, and he hits the three, and that ultimately leads to the to the Lakers winning their championship in 2010, going back to back, beating the Celtics. I mean, there's so many. There's just so many moments I could have picked, but those are my those are my top moments. So I pick uh Magic Johnson in 1980 finals. Then I pick Michael Jordan in the 1991 finals, obviously that layup. Then I pick Michael Jordan 1992 finals. Then I pick Michael Jordan 1998 finals. <laughs> uh then I picked Allen Iverson's AI's 2001 finals. LeBron uh oh well I should say the Mavericks 2011 finals game two in particular game two, when they went on a 22 to five run to beat the Miami heat, they were trailing, uh, obviously Ray Allen's baseline three and then LeBron's block. And then lastly, but not least Durant's pull up jump shot, pull up three from way downtown, uh, from Lake Erie, 
He pulled that from Lake Erie and he sealed the deal in game three. Um, but without further ado, I'm gonna let you guys go. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, I'll be back on Tuesday. I'll be back on Tuesday. Always remember two choices, one decision. Peace, deuces, gone.